namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Welcome to the uh, first of these uh, Sunday afternoon talks of this very unusual year, this uh, unique uh, COVID-19 year that we're having. Uh, so normally uh, the rains retreat begins and every Sunday uh, here in the uh, the sala at uh, Amravati there will be lines and lines of, of chairs and many people would have uh, come to uh, take part um, in uh, this, the uh, Sunday afternoon Dhamma teaching and time for questions. Uh, this is a residential community here, so not that this is any the less of a gathering on account of... Uh, the local regulars being here, but uh, it is uh, an unusual time, uh, unusual setup. But uh, we will, uh, over the next uh, 12 weeks, we'll have these uh, Sunday afternoon talks. And as uh, has been uh, arranged, if people want to look at the title on the website uh, to uh, send in questions ahead of time. So people have been diligent in uh, sending in some questions related to the topic. Uh, so as the the uh, the coming weeks unfold if you look at the title send in your questions that, that relate to the title uh, as well as you can and then we'll endeavor to weave those in at the end in the, uh, the time for uh, dhamma discussion and questions and responses so the uh, the theme for today is testing dhamma for testing times or testing dhamma in testing times and particularly uh, with relationship to the uh, the coronavirus epidemic the covid-19 as it's spread all around the world, most countries uh, around uh, planet Earth at the moment are affected in uh, various uh, degrees by this uh, this epidemic. And uh, in Britain, uh, in the UK, uh, to a greater extent than many other countries, we have a very high infection and death rate uh, in this country. Um, I think nearly 45,000 people have passed away from uh, from the illness itself since it began in the earlier part of this year and uh, so it's a matter of great concern and as people know um, particularly within this country we had a lot of restrictions Amravati is still closed down to visitors that's why we haven't got a uh, hundred or so people who've come to, to join us for the afternoon but it's uh, the local regulars and that um, the uh, uh, the prospect of opening up uh, a little bit uh, uh, next month is is there we're still not absolutely sure we'll be able to do that because of the um, seeing whether there's a, whether there's another spike um beginning with the uh, uh say the increasing of infections or not we'll have to wait and see everything is uh, very uncertain in that respect so these are testing times and uh, so when we use a phrase like that it, uh, and being given this title for the opening talk of, of this session 
then I think it is good to to look through what the the, the various tests uh, have been, particularly a sense of containment. You know, if you, if people who have needed to travel have had to do a whole setup of making sure they're they're either quarantined before they they set off, or they have a period of quarantine when they arrive. When they're traveling, they have to have rubber gloves. They have to be. Um, uh, observing all kinds of uh, cl uh, cleaning protocols along the way for their travels. Uh, personally, I haven't left the site of Amravati since the end of March, um, and uh, so that the uh, the kind of limitation that people are experiencing is very impactful. So there's a lot of frustration, as I've mentioned a number of times, and one of the tragic consequences of the of the lockdown is a, a great escalation in domestic violence. People are very frustrated, very frustrated, living at close quarters with each other, uh, losing people, losing their tempers, getting, uh, say, uh, angry and upset with uh, the, uh, the their nearest and dearest. And so that that is, that sense of containment or limitation, uh, the feeling of being under under house arrest uh, for this extended period of time is very, uh, say, um, impactful for, for many, many people. Certainly for some of the uh, members of the community here at Amravati, the, uh, the prospect of being able to go out an arms round uh, into, into the town of Berkhamsted was, was quite a bit of inquiry. When, when can we go? When can arms round begin again? And, and the great glee when it was realized that we you know, could do that with uh, certain limitations and uh, could begin again. So that sense of, of frustration and containment is one of the, the tests that uh, people are, are meeting with. There is a, um, uh, a, 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 an inability that we have as a society to deal with that sense of of containment because we're so used to be able to sort of go out for a go out for a walk, go places, do things. When the weather went uh, became sunny and they loosened the restrictions a bit, the the photographs in in the uh, in the news of the beaches packed edge to edge, the the parks filled with people enjoying the sunshine, just eager to get out and to to be able to uh, breathe some air away from their 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 flat or their home, uh, their their house for a change. So that sense of, of enforced containment has been very challenging, very testing for, for, for many, many people. Similarly, the fear of, of infection, you know, that we are, uh, we are uh, taking a lot of precautions as best we can uh, here at Amravati, but also there's a difference between taking precautions and being careful and living in fear or, or having a, 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 an overwhelming sense of anxiety. But for many people, that uh, that sense of uh, the uh, the pressure of the illness, the fear of contracting the the coronavirus, the the effects it's going to have uh, on the the body, how they're going to deal with it, what's uh, what's going to be the result of it, uh, the the way it's affecting the the people around them. So, another of the testing qualities is that uh, that uh, feeling of fear, that sense of oh dear, what happens if we get it? If it if it comes into Amravati, how's it going to be? We have quite a few older people, some people who've got frail health, what's it going to be like, how's it going to be, what are we going to do, how's that going to work? So when the mind, um, again, is not very well prepared, then that sense of, of threat or, or danger, the sense of, of uncertainty can be quite overwhelming, a profound stressfulness coming from that that not knowing how the, uh, how, how the future is going to be, how the, the sense of, of danger, um, so fear, 
is uh, is a, a, a easily present quality. Similarly, grief the, uh, is testing because of the people that uh, have died, the members of the family, friends, or those who have uh, have uh, succumbed to the, the illness. People, some still quite young, m- many people who've died in the line of duty, uh, are quite uh, a number of uh, of doctors, nurses, um, uh, friends of friends, people that we know, associates of long-time supporters and uh, friends of Amravati have literally passed away, have died in the course of carrying out their duties as nurses, doctors. Um, that uh, that sense of of sadness, of grief at, uh, at those who have died, people in care homes just uh, nearby in Nettledon, there were four people who died in the in the uh, the, the care home uh, just less than uh, just less than a mile away from Amravati. So uh, this is you know forty five nearly forty five thousand people within the, this country alone have passed away, and in the United States nearly one hundred thirty thousand. Uh, in many countries around the world, Brazil in particular, but all all over the planet, uh, there is this um, sense of of sadness and loss. That the uh, some places, the people dying so fast, they can't, they literally can't bury them quickly enough, or they can't cremate the bodies quickly enough. That having to put bodies into refrigeration because there isn't the time or the people to take care of the funerals. You know, these are these are uh, sad and painful uh, issues in our lives. Uh, so that the, in terms of, of the tests also, the, we have frustration, a feeling that the various governments, the United Kingdom government or other governments around the world could be doing more, they could have done things differently. So another of the testing uh, qualities is that feeling of, of powerlessness or being given unclear guidance or confusing guidance or, or no guidance <laughs> from the, the various authorities. And uh, the, the the frustration that comes from that, and again, when we haven't trained the mind well, when we we don't understand our minds, we don't understand thought and emotion, then when we are dealing with with uh, what might seem to be, uh, say, situations that didn't have to be that way, or that we're, we're experiencing the results of other people's choices. And those those results are painful, destructive. Uh, they bring you know, loss and sadness. And it's easy to to feel frustrated to, again, to get upset, to get to get angry, to get lost in those uh, emotional states. And uh, and so that uh, I'm not wanting to make this afternoon a whole long litany of <laughs> of stresses and difficulties, but I do feel it's important to to say to really bring to mind to to allow into the heart the the, the depth and range of difficulties that are being experienced, uh, not just within this community, but uh, around the country, uh, around the world. Is it just uh, uh, recently in uh, in France, a bus driver um, was uh, who was trying to uh, carry out the instruction that the passengers should be wearing face coverings was literally killed by the passengers, uh, frustrated and angry with him trying to impose this uh, restriction on them. And he died, literally died in, in the line of duty as a bus driver. And his, uh, uh, so this is uh, uh, a very you know, sad, tragic, and, and uh, difficult situations that, that we're facing uh, around the world. So that uh, the, um, I think that the um, real 
challenge, one of the challenges of these testing times is to have an open-heartedness to that, to be able to acknowledge or to receive this long list of difficulties. Also, just the, the sadness of people who are the regular supporters and friends of Amravati that, uh, uh, who haven't, literally haven't been able to come and set foot on the property. They've, many people have very, very generously, devotedly been bringing food and flowers and other offerings to, to the back gate, leaving them on the table and, and following all of the procedures to, to help us. But it's a, it's a heartbreak, it's a sadness that they haven't been able to physically come onto the site. And again, hopefully, uh, next month, uh, as, uh, uh, as August gets underway, we'll be able to open things up to a, a small degree. But uh, it, it's a it's a feeling of uh, of say separation that, that you're not even able to carry out your your religious observances and for not just here at the Amravati monastery but people going to uh, the uh, Sikh gurdwaras to Christian temples to the to mosques and synagogues and, and uh, various different kinds of of holy places uh, that uh, they haven't been open to the public so many many people's uh, spiritual life has been somewhat starved on account of of the these restrictions so that the um the the the, the tests have been many and various and continue to be many and various and uh, also one of the things that i've noticed um quite a variety of different institutions from uh, not just in this country but people around the world have been calling me up, sending me emails, saying, you know, we've got a bit of a, an issue at our, in our group, uh, there's some conflict going on, and that uh, I've been, not that I'm a professional mediator by any means, but uh, it's been surprising over the last two or three months how often people have got in touch with me saying, could you could you help us out? We've got a, a bit of an issue here, and that uh, we need someone to help um uh, so us to to discuss because there's, there's a real conflict going on, and I feel again it's uh, the uh, the limitation uh, of movement, the limitation of of activities. People aren't able to go to work. The children aren't going to schools. The uh, universities and colleges are shut down. So people haven't got a, a, the usual range of activities and distractions, entertainments, responsibilities, so that the attention goes to uh, the, uh, and the, 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 the things that are local, the, the narrower field of attention. Uh, and that causes more stress, more difficulty, there more issues uh, rise up because, uh, at least by my interpretation, is a, a smaller range of choice. In that, in an average year, in the normal quote-unquote run of things, then there's a far bigger range of things to put our mind onto. But when that, that the limit narrows, and this is one of the causes for domestic violence, is that then that uh, human energy uh, and our, uh, particularly those negative or fault-finding habits that we have, lands on the people around us. It lands on the institution around us. And so what we might uh, be able to deal with a bit more easily in the general flow of things, uh, when there's a smaller range like that, then it gets amplified. At least this is what my uh, my way of reading it, because it's um, you know, from a number of different countries uh, around uh, around the world, number of different uh, groups and institutions connected with us, sort of calling on me with very similar uh, very similar conditions. There's a, some issue has blown up, and it's getting uh, really hard to resolve it. So these are many and various tests that that we have. 
And uh, so I, I feel uh, the, uh, the, the title for this talk, Testing Dhamma for Testing Times, is quite, quite appropriate, quite apposite, because um, uh, one of the, the, uh, say the attributes of Dhamma is that it's not a very comforting religion. Uh, Buddha Dhamma is not consoling or comforting, uh, and I, I often bring this up. How, uh, when uh, uh, a number of religious teachings have the uh, principles like you know everything will be all right in the end, we'll all get to heaven eventually, or you know, or uh, everything will be all right, you know, all beings will will dissolve into the into the absolute eventually, and uh, it'll all turn out all right in the end. It'll all end happily ever after, and. Uh, and so, um, this, uh, in various different ways over the years, this, this comes up where people make this kind of, uh, point or have this kind of assumption. They say, it is all, we're all going to be enlightened in the end, aren't we, Ajahn? Um, and so then, it depends, depends who I'm talking to, what the, the, the flow of the conversation is. But the usual response is, well, if you follow the Buddha Dhamma, <laughs> According to the the Pali Canon, then that's not necessarily the case. That uh, if uh, it, it's uh, it's it's not a comforting religion. It's not a don't worry, everything will be all right. Uh, we'll all get to heaven in the end. It's a it's far more of a testing teaching. It's uh, it's a it's more in the, along the lines of if you do the right things, it'll all end up uh, it will it'll end up happily. But if you don't do the right things, then it won't end happily. It'll just go on and on and on. That samsara is uh, endlessness. And so for for some people that's very challenging. It's rather like when we're a small child, we fall over and, and we bump ourselves and then, then we're in tears and, and say, Mommy, kiss it better, kiss it better. And so your mom comes along, if you have a mother, <laughs> and kisses your elbow or your, or, or your knee and there's, there it is, okay, it's better. Oh, thank you very much, Mommy. Yeah. And then you feel consoled, you feel comforted, even though the scratch is still there or the bump is still there, you know, so Mommy kissed it better. And that, uh, 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 not to, to, to make, make light of those particular spiritual teachings, but they do tend to, to feed a, a childlike area within us, that sense of wanting to be comforted, that we're to be told everything's going to be all right. And, um, that is to a degree, that's comforting, but it's, I would say it's the, the comfort that is appropriate for a, a childlike mind. And that, uh, the, the Buddha Dhamma that we have in the Theravada, uh, tradition in the Southern, uh, Southern Buddhist school, it's more demanding. It's, it's more, a, uh, in a way, uh, uh, putting the onus, the, the responsibility onto each individual, uh, so that uh, it's, uh, as I was just saying, if you do the right thing, if you if you relate to the present experience in a skillful way, then it will end up all right. You're really all right. You know, the, the the heart can be liberated. Dukkha can fully come to an end. The dukkha niroda is possible. The ending of all suffering is possible. But if you don't do what's what's necessary, if you don't do the right thing, then it's going to go on and on and on. It's not going to end happily. It just the dukkha continues. And so the the childlike mind within us says, "Oh, don't say that. <laughs> yeah, please, you know, don't don't take my hope away from me." But in a way, that kind of realism I feel is is more skillful because it helps us to grow up. It helps us to to realize, yes, yeah, some work needs to be done. That it's up to us as individuals what we what we do with the present experience. It's not just 
um, uh, some kind of consoling principle from that will make us feel all right, like a mother kissing a, a better when we scratched ourselves. But rather, it's it's saying, well, it's it's up to you. And as it says in the in the Pali teachings over and over again, you know, the the Buddha said uh, the Tathagata, the the enlightened one, can only point the way. The Tathagata points the way. He can't take suffering away from another being. Even a fully enlightened Buddha cannot just take another being's suffering away. Over and over he would say that the Tathagata uh, only points the way, atakaro Tathagata. And Lumpocha was very, very fond of quoting that, that uh, the, the Tathagata, the, the enlightened, only points the way. It's up to each individual to, to make the, the changes, uh, to, to do the work that, that's necessary to bring about that quality of, of liberation. So the the kind of dhammas that are encouraged, or the kind of practices that are encouraged, are testing. So that um, that uh, uh, even though it might sound kind of depressing to 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 say um, you know, that it that uh, we can't guarantee that it's all going to uh, it's all going to turn out happily uh, ever after, or ha- it's all going to be we're all going to get enlightened in the end. Um, the 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 Buddha's approach is to, in, in a way, to encourage us to turn towards what the, the issues are, what, where where we get lost, where the, where the challenges are, where the tests are coming. So if it's if it's um, if there's a test, <laughs> it's better to be prepared for the test, to to do the to do your homework, to do your your revision, to get ready for the test, so that uh, we're able to 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 deal with it, to work with it when the, when the tests come. So the, the first thing that came to mind in this respect is what we call the four heavenly messengers. So, uh, uh, and this is uh, a, a very um, appropriate teaching in time of, of uh, the pandemic, this uh, global uh, illness uh, all over the planet, millions, tens of millions of people infected uh, by, this, uh, by this disease. Hundreds of thousands have passed away around, around the world. So the, the heavenly messengers. This is a term, the Deva Dutta, that, that the, the Buddha used, uh, and it's 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 one of those ways that the the Buddha takes a particular term and sort of tweaks its its meaning. So that when we think of a heavenly messenger, what comes to mind is a sort of radiant Deva uh, appearing out of the sky, or like in, in Judeo-Christian mythology, the angel Gabriel coming along with sort of golden hair and lilies, and you know, sort of surrounded by radiant light. And so a heavenly messenger, ta-da, you know, the kind of bright, beautiful, the word heavenly gives that clue, deva dutta. But the heavenly messengers in terms of the, the, the Buddha's teaching is, uh, is aging, sickness, death, and the renunciate. So, oh, it's more like the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you know. That uh, again, from the Bible, you have these uh, these four kind of threatening presences, uh, pestilence or, you know, disease, war, uh, uh, famine uh, and death. I think, if I remember correctly, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So they're very threatening, and uh, and to to be avoided, to to um, to think of those uh, uh, as anyhow in, in any way heavenly or, or liberating or somehow desirable is, is is shocking, it's startling. But the Buddha liked to use that kind of shock tactic to sort of get our attention, and so calling. Uh, uh, old age, sickness, uh, sickness and death, and, and the uh, renunciate, the heavenly messengers. He's he's getting our attention because it's uh, they were, they seem more hellish 
than than heavenly. So he's like, what is he talking about? Why does he say that? What, how can this be? The, what what's so heavenly about aging, sickness, and death and renunciation? That's uh, off-putting, threatening, dangerous. So that the uh, the reason why he calls them heavenly is because they bring our attention to where we get stuck, that the, the mind uh, is easily attached to youth, to health, to comfort, to the, the assumption that somehow we're going to live forever, and that we don't want to lose anything that we have, that uh, the things that we have are precious and good and they're mine, and so we assume that we're going to be able to keep them, and keeping them is good. So the the heavenliness of the of the four heavenly messengers is that they are um, say things that that uh, challenge those assumptions. They challenge those habits of thinking we're going to be young forever, that we're never going to get sick, or we we're never, we're not going to uh, we're not going to die, and that uh, we are, be able to to keep all the things that we like, and that they they are things that genuinely and truly belong to us. And what the what the Buddha is doing with this is a testing teaching because it it's challenging, it's threatening our cherished beliefs and hopes. Again, somewhat childlike that um, we uh, that we we want we assume that we can be healthy, or we want to be healthy, or we should be able to be healthy. That we're going to live a long time. Uh, we're not going to die. The people around us, our loved ones, are not going to die. And uh, and that we don't have to lose anything that is is precious or beloved to us, but the the heavenliness comes in the the change of heart, uh, the the quality of wisdom that arises when we are say uh, looking at those those attitudes, those uh, un uh, unwise or, or habitual attitudes that are there, and we challenge them. So that uh, the the Buddha's encouragement is uh, is contained within what's called the five subjects for frequent recollection. You know, I am of the nature to age. I am of the nature to sicken. I am of the nature to die. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. Will become separated from me. I'm the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide, supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. So again, just like the uh, the um, the four heavenly messengers seem on, uh, on the surface being a bit more hellish than heavenly, the five subjects for, re- for frequent recollection um, they're they're challenging, they're they're testing, they're they're not things that the ego wants to hear. That they they are uh, uh, when people come across this uh, this teaching or when we have this as part of the the recitation, the daily chanting. Uh, I know for myself, when you first come across this in the chanty, but you go, oh, that's pretty, pretty depressing. <laughs> Why do you want to think about that? Why does the Buddha want us to think about that every day? Is he kind of malicious or sadistic or what's, what's, what's his problem? You know, it seems like a really unpleasant things to, to think about. But what the, uh, what the Buddha's doing is saying, look, look, this, this isn't some kind of weird imposition on your life. It's not that something's going wrong, that you're getting older. Uh, it's not something that's going wrong, that you're, you're subject to sickness, that the body doesn't work uh, well all the time. Nothing is going wrong in the fact that people die. You know, every, everything that's born is going to die one day. 
nothing is going wrong in the, in the, the, the in the observation that things that you call your own you can only keep around for a certain time and then they break or they go they dissolve they get lost they get stolen they they end they fade away that nothing is going wrong that's how nature works that's how nature has always worked and so that feeling of wrongness or it shouldn't be this way or can't we negotiate this uh, that's coming from self-view that's coming from those uh, ancient instinctual habits our sort of animal ancestry if you like that uh, that uh, say looks uh, at life in this very limited and self-centered and uh, a, uh, an instinctual way. It's not seeing things clearly. It's see seeing things from the basis of self-view. So the Buddha is saying, "Look, look, you, you've been making a mistake your whole life. <laughs> you've been seeing things incorrectly, and you've been living in fear—fear fear of getting old, fear of getting sick, fear of dying, fear of losing the things that you that you think you own that are precious to you." And by uh, by turning towards that and re and changing the point of view from a self-centered point of view to a a, a a view based on nature, based on reality, then what happens is a sense of oh, what was I thinking of? Oh, oh that was a bit foolish. Oh, why did I why did I think that uh, I was somehow never going to get ill? You know, wh why was I? Why am I surprised that I'm getting older? Uh, why am I surprised there's wrinkles appearing on my face or my, my eyesight is a bit more blurry than it used to be, my hearing is not so good. Why is that a shock? Or uh, <laughs> why, why am I uh, startled that it's going that way when that's the way it goes for, for everybody as the, as the body ages? Of course, how could it be otherwise? So that then that sense of, oh, of course, is exactly what the, the Buddha's teaching is, is aiming to, to bring about, which we would call the, the awakening of wisdom or the development uh, of wisdom. So that in terms of a testing Dhamma, <laughs> testing Dhamma for testing times, that's the first thing, I, first thing I would encourage is that conscious development of reflection on the, the four heavenly messengers, the four messages. And then the, the, the fourth of those, the, the renunciate, the, the story goes that it, um, it was the considerations before the Buddha left the palace when he was a, a bodhisattva. He was a, one on the on the path to enlightenment, on the path to Buddhahood. He considered uh, that he said uh, this body is subject to sickness, it's subject to aging, it's subject to death. Why should uh, why should I, who is subject subject to sickness, to aging, to ailing, to death, also seek after that which is subject to to aging, to sickness, to to death? Why not uh, seek the unaging, the unailing, the deathless? And so that was the, the line of thought, the pattern of thought that he had that caused him to leave the palace life, to leave his marriage, to leave the family, and to take up the life of, of a renunciate. That uh, in, in later times that got woven into uh, a, an account of, of him leaving the palace with his charioteer Chana and seeing a, an old person, a sick person, and a dead person, and a, a wandering monk. But that's um, in the Pali canon, that, that story comes from the life of the Buddha Vipassi, many many eons ago but it got melded together with the life of the buddha gotama but certainly what we have in his own account is that uh, pattern of consideration that i just described that's what led to him leaving uh, leaving the palace so that that fourth of the heavenly messages is renunciation which is uh, the, in uh, pali is the word nikamma nikamma 
and one is one of the the paramitas, one of the, the spiritual virtues. So I think it's also helpful to consider in terms of uh, of the these uh, testing times and, and practices appropriate for these testing times is to consider what do I think of as being mine? What do I think of as as being, uh, say, my property or or my my rights? Because as a lot of renunciation has had to go on. You know, people are under sort of enforced uh, enclosure, under sort of house arrest for several months, uh, that our freedom uh, to go where we want to, do what we like, has, uh, has been lost. But is it, uh, if we change the attitude towards it, if we cultivate that quality of nikamma, then that, uh, uh, say, uh, attitude that has been there that this is my right to go where I want do what I like I can f refuse to wear a face covering if I want to I can go wherever I like I can be as close to other people as I want to that um, that attitude which um, say is natural enough or understandable enough that uh, if we reflect upon Nekama to, to see well does it have to be seen as a, a loss does it have to be seen as something that was mine or that I could do something that was my right or was it just that at that time that was a possibility to do that at this moment it's not possible to do that the limitation uh, there's limitation in in where we can go there's limitation in what we can do limitation in who we can spend our time with or how close we can be to other people that's the pattern of things at this time for those who have who have illnesses not just the covid-19 but have injuries or illnesses become paralyzed with uh, with motor neuron disease or have injuries that make them uh, paraplegic or quadriplegic limitation of movement limitation of speech people have strokes they can't speak or they can't uh, they can't move then they, they they're confronted with exactly this kind of, of challenge uh, on, in, a, in a very radical way but again if we're wise and we consciously cultivate the quality of nekama and that uh, that change of attitude, then we can recognize, well, I could see clearly for a while, but now my vision is gone. I could move around for some time, now I can't move anymore. I used to be able to think clearly, now I can't think so clearly anymore. But that uh, that has, uh, uh, say, been lost to me. And there's, uh, 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 even though that might be um, challenging or, or shocking, like, well, no, don't say that, or it's not so easy, or that, that's awful, that's terrible. Again, this is a testing teaching, and I think it's helpful to, to reflect upon that how much we take for granted. We, we are very presumptuous that just because now I can talk, I can think of words, one day the words are going to run out. Uh, even for a loquacious person like myself, I can see a few people smiling like Ajahn Amro, the words are never going to run out. They will! There might be 120 by the time they run out, but they will run out one day. Absolutely guaranteed. They, they can't flow forever. Or they'll get, they'll get very scrambled along the way. Um, that, uh, and that's how it's, that's how it is. And if we change our, our attitude, uh, and to see, well, that was how it was. I had that capacity for a time, and it was enjoyable, but now it's gone. Then, even though that um, faculty or that thing that we thought was ours, or who, or was uh, that we were the owner of, or that was our natural capacity, it's revealed what well, it wasn't. It was just there for a time. It was impermanent, and now it's gone. One of the most uh, impressive books and films that. Uh, uh, I saw in recent years was called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. 
this uh, gentleman, uh, a French, um, Frenchman, Jean Jean Do, <laughs> uh, who was the editor of um, a, uh, a very high-profile French magazine, very kind of bon viveur. Uh, kind of person, very, very much living the high life, brilliant, good looking, rich, uh, highly admired, talented, and boom, had a stroke. And, uh, suddenly he was uh, unable to speak, unable to move, and experiencing what they call locked in syndrome. He could blink one eye, and then the, the, the diving bell of the title of the book, he, he wrote the whole book through blinking his eye, through, through, um, blinking out, uh, messages through uh, through the 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 one eye he had movement in and then his uh, patient and faithful scribes the the nurses who were helping to look after him were able to to jot down the, the words that he was uh, he was saying so the whole book was written through him blinking and the diving bell is sort of being in this enclosed chamber so this is locked into this bubble and then the butterfly was the the papillon the or the psyche uh, is also the, the Greek word for butterfly is psyche, the word we use for the mind, was the mind that was, uh, say, there in contradistinction to the, the diving bell experience. There was the butterfly, that, uh, that beautiful free quality of uh, that, uh, that the mind, that even though there was such limitation, so you can't move, can't speak, can't do anything except blink one eye, everything else is frozen, still, there was the capacity to experience freedom and beauty uh, within that. So uh, I, I highly recommend the book and there's um, the film that was made uh, uh, from that is quite extraordinary representation of of how the the change of attitude can make all the difference. I don't wish that we have <laughs> we experienced locked-in syndrome. Of course, that we would uh, not wish that upon anybody. But it's a good example of how, uh, even with the most gross and, and terrible uh, unwanted limitations, we can find freedom. We can find true joy, uh, and that uh, that's with that. That's not just wishful thinking. That's the actuality. Uh, I've been with people myself. Uh, one uh, gentleman I went to see just before, short, a few weeks before he died, in Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, and uh, he again he couldn't speak. He was uh, suffering from motor neuron disease. His body was slowly getting more and more paralysed, and he could speak through a he had a knitting needle in, between his teeth, and he could point to letters on a letterboard, so he could speak through a letterboard. And uh, he was one of the most joyful people I've ever met in my life. A man called John Nightingale, and it's very like a, the song of a nightingale. <laughs> he, he had an incredible sparkle to him, he, and he was, with all sincerity, saying, pointing his knitting needle around the, the hospital ward and saying through his letterboard, "I feel really sorry for all these people. They're just the doctors, the nurses. They're they're rushing about thinking they're in control of things. If only they knew." And it was extraordinary. He really meant it. He wasn't, it wasn't just wishful thinking or looking on the bright side. He, he, you could see he really felt sorry for the able-bodied people who were rushing about doing their thing and being kind of important doctors and efficient nurses and, and such like. Uh, it was, uh, a, um, a really beautiful encounter with him. 
So nekama, the, the word nekama, the, the etymology of it, the root of it is not choosing the delicious or not choosing the delightful. So ne as in no or not, karma as in sense pleasure. So the mind that is not investing in the pleasurable. So it's not to do with, with a, a aversion to, to pleasure. But it's a way of not being swept along by that in us which wants to choose the good, the comfortable, the beautiful, but rather is finding a quality of, of clarity and, and ease whether the, the, the pleasant or the delightful is around or not. The, the heart which can really in, enjoy the present reality, whether there is comfort and deliciousness or, or, and beauty or, or not. So it's choosing the, that, that which is, uh, uh, say, uh, not conducive to, to sense desire, sense pleasure. So, nes kama, kama. So another of the, the qualities of te uh, testing practices um, uh, is patience. That uh, the, the parami of kanti, the, the uh, spiritual virtue of patience. Again, we don't need to be patient with beautiful, pleasant, delicious, delightful things. We, we uh, instinctually, we want more of those. That if it's beautiful and delightful and pleasant, yes, more please, thank you very much. And that's how we are. That's, that's the mind's conditioned an ordinary relationship to, to the pleasant. So we don't have to be patient with pleasurable experiences. Patience is appropriate in the face of discomfort, of the unwanted, the unlovable, the, the difficult. So to be, uh, to be patient is to uh, change the attitude towards that which is unattractive or, or challenging, that which is, um, uh, say, what, what, the heart meeting with what it doesn't like, the unlikable. So that the particularly physical pain, and so that all these uh, situations of frustration, being locked down, being told that oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. So patience, I like to talk about as it's not the, the English uh, connotations uh, the, uh, of patience are gritting your teeth, like okay, we'll just be patient. It's a sort of begrudging, as a resentful. You just sort of. Gritting your teeth, you're, you're not going to run away. You're going to stick with it. But there's a negativity there. There's a there's a, a buckling down. But you're you're waiting for it to be over. You're using strength. You're you're, you're not running away from it. But there's a, a, a so that's not a bad thing. But the patience, which is the liberating quality of the the paramita of patience, uh, is it's not just a gritting your teeth and sort of muscling through something painful and just waiting for it to be over, but it's a, it's a learning how to not wait. So I, uh, in terms of a test, the, the, the test of true patience is how to let go of time, to not be waiting. So genuine patience is to not be creating time. That there is nothing but this present reality. The mind is not creating uh, a future that is promising something more comfortable, or when this difficult thing is going to be over, or this problematic situation. When the, when the epidemic's gone next year, it'll be over, won't it, Ajahn? Or, oh, okay, we can bear it for now, but yeah, in August, people will be able to come, or we'll be able to travel around a bit more, or yeah, come the end of the year, you will be able to come to Thailand, won't you? <laughs> so to be patient is to to let go of time. Like uh, one way that Lumpur Cha put it once was to say, uh, uh, a spiritual seeker, a summoner, has no future. 
which again to the ego is like eh, don't say that no future that's like that's that's death that's that's awful to say no future means no prospects or no no hope um, but what it's it's uh, it's pointing to is a change uh, of attitude that the mind is not creating an image of a future time and trying to invest in that image but rather it's fully open to to the present even though there might be a veneer a layer of discomfort or difficulty or something that is bitter or unwanted to be truly patient is to say here it is <laughs> this is, i'm not waiting for this to be over uh, there's no me here wanting something to be uh, different over there but there is this it's exactly this way uh, and i often uh, in this respect talk about a, a time when we had a during the winter retreats, uh, when uh, Lumpur Sumedha was teaching here back in the late 80s, early 90s, we used to have four-hour sittings a few times during the winter retreat period. And the rule of the four-hour sitting was that uh, begin at one o'clock, uh, finish uh, at, um, uh, say, the, uh, at uh, the uh, at five o'clock, and you had to stay on your mat. You had to. You could stand up. You could change your posture, but you weren't allowed to leave your leave the space of your mat. And so that um, from uh, from one to two, two to three, three to four, four to five, four hours. <laughs> that was your spot. And so uh, on this one occasion, uh, I was in my sort of heroic um, take no prisoners kind of a era. I decided, okay, well, yeah, it's, it's a four-hour sitting, but I, I can quite comfortably manage to stay on one spot for four hours. I'll determine to not change my posture for four hours. And so this immediately set off every kind of tense, uh, reactive uh, process in my in my being. And immediately I was in, in agony after about five minutes. And normally I could sit for an hour, hour and a half without too much discomfort. In this particular instance, I was in, in agony after a few minutes and then whimpering after an hour like why do i do this to myself but i'd made my resolutions so i was going to stick with it then after an hour or so i, I was sort of whimpering inwardly uh, i i opened my eyes and i looked around the room and there was 60 other people in the room that i had completely ignored for the previous hour i, I was so wrapped up in my own misery that i had forgotten that anybody else existed so i thought well if i'm going to be here and uncomfortable at least i can do something useful so I decided I'll, uh, I'll just spread loving kindness to everybody else in the room. And okay, my legs are on fire and they really ache and it's miserable and horrible. That's going to be the case anyway. So let's just uh, generate loving kindness because everyone's really working hard to try and uh, deal with their, their, their minds uh, here. And uh, at least I can create some positive vibrations. So I started doing meta practice for everybody in the room. And lo and behold, my, my body started to get more comfortable. Like the more, the more kind of um, the heart moved towards loving kindness and s spreading goodwill, and the more at ease I became physically until the the physical pain went away altogether. I thought, well, that's great. That's a neat trick. As soon as as soon as I thought that's a neat trick, <laughs> surprise, surprise, the the agonies all came back. Okay, no tricks. It's not it's just meta with no strings. Whether the pain comes back or it doesn't, I don't care. Just uh, just have loving kindness for all beings. And uh, to my amazement, um, the uh, to cut a long story short, when the when the Lumpur rang the bell at five o'clock, my first thought was, "Oh, I was enjoying that," which was not the thought I was expecting. <laughs> that uh, I had assumed that when the bell went, there'd be hurrah, 
I made it, you know, and uh, I can get away and be comfortable. But uh, to my surprise, I'm not trying to make any claims, but it was, uh, it was, oh, no, it was, I was enjoying that. Because what was being enjoyed was that, uh, that wholesome, loving attitude. And yeah, the body was, it was, uh, when I paid attention to it, it, it was, you know, it was a bit stiff and achy, but that was very much in the background. And the, the, the discomfort was, was, uh, hardly, it was kind of negligible, hardly, hardly made an impact at all. So that, um, uh, that quality of loving kindness is, I, I feel, is also tied up with, with patience, that sense of an open-heartedness to, here it is, it's this way. You're not waiting for the painful or the difficult or the frustrating to be over. You're not waiting for the government to change its policies so they'll get everything right for a change. You're not waiting for the neighbors to be quiet so that you can be comfortable for a change. You're not waiting for your, your partner, your Ajahn, or your neighbor to, to uh, act in ways that don't irritate you. In this moment, it's exactly this way. And we begin to see, just like... Uh, uh, with with uh, the uh, the four heavenly messengers, it's the wanting things to be different, that hoping it's going to change into something that you like, being afraid of it changing into something that's even worse. That hoping and fearing is the generator of so much suffering. And when the heart lets go and and sees things in terms of nature, in this moment, it's exactly this way. Whether you like it or you don't like it, here it is. It's like this, like the aging process or sickness. Uh, the uh, uh, it's exactly this way and so then true patience is that openness of the heart and not creating time and uh, the causes for for uh, for that tensing of the heart it's not creating a sense of hope and fear it's not f creating an imaginary future and then trying to occupy that Oh, well, another of the things uh, I, I feel is, is useful to share in this respect uh, is how we, we are very, uh, very uh, much a part of the, the Thai forest tradition, and this is our, our, our origins, our ancestry from Lumpur and Pusumato and, and the, the Dutanga traditions of Thailand. And the, so Dutanga is uh, the, the word used to define the uh, ascetic practices that the Buddha allowed. So that these are technically the 13 different practices that the, the Buddha allowed, and they form a, a large uh, part of the forest uh, Thai forest tradition way of practicing. Also, the other uh, countries of the Buddhist world, where they they have this, um, say, meditation traditions, often use these Dutanga practices. So these are uh, practices that the Buddha allowed to to kind of. Um, strengthen the spiritual focus, uh, mostly practiced within the monastic community. But I feel in this respect they're quite useful to inform the, the broader lay community uh, as well. So these are things, uh, Dutanga literally means uh, a method of shaking off, so a way to, if something's sort of stuck to you, like you've got a sweet wrapper stuck to you, a way of shaking it off, or things that are, are you're carrying around, it's a way of putting them down, letting go of them. So the Dutangas are means of shaking off attachments and unskillful habits. So what they, they're aimed at, at the habits of dependency on food, on sleep, on personal space, on physical comfort. So the Buddha didn't allow his disciples to torture themselves. 
he didn't uh, say agree to any of those kind of uh, destructive ascetic practices. But the dutangas are things like uh, practicing eating only only one meal a day. Uh, or um, the, uh, just eating the food that uh, you get on the arms round in the village, and not getting any, uh, not receiving any food that's prepared in the monastery. Um, it can be just like uh, living under the foot of a tree rather than living inside a building, or wearing uh, clothes made out of um, discarded cloth rather than than using uh, cloth that's that's uh, sort of um, freshly woven cloth that's that's given to you to make robes from. So uh, I won't go into all of the details of it, but the uh, the the aim is to say challenge the areas where again we take refuge in comfort or we take refuge in in having things the way we like. So the nikama, that not not the sense pleasure, <laughs> the moving away from taking refuge in sense pleasure is uh, what this is about. So say for example, uh, uh, eating one meal a day. So uh, here at Amravati, there's a, a abundant breakfast materials are, are offered, but some uh, some members of the sangha choose to just have uh, the one meal of the day to not to not have any breakfast, so that uh, you are uh, every day you're experiencing hunger. That uh, yes, there's there's and we're very grateful for all the food that is offered, but uh, but. Uh, every day you get to re- to remember. All oh, right, the body gets hungry. It depends on food. All oh, right. Ooh, my stomach is growling. Yes, the, uh, let's not let's not forget that this is an orga- organic process, and that food is not guaranteed. That that hunger is something that exists as part of our our living system. Uh, another of the the practices is to uh, to not lie down uh, uh, to to use just sitting standing and walking as a three postures to, to never lie down so taking this as a practice for a day and a night or for a week or a fortnight or a longer period and so that um this is uh, again it's a, it's a deliberate limitation it's not physically damaging but it's also um it means that it's very difficult to get comfortable you're always a bit sleep deprived i did this for about 3 years from when i uh uh, I, f- I was up in the, the monastery in Northumberland, and then the first year I was here at Amravati. So, from the beginning, of, from August of eighty uh, eighty three till I think the New Year of eighty seven, I think I did this practice. So essentially, I'm not again. I'm not trying to boast, but uh, essentially, just uh, just to give it as an example, you you don't uh, you don't ever get comfortable. Everything aches most of the time. <laughs> You're always a bit sleepy. Um, it's always an effort to stay awake in the meditation, um, and uh, and you uh, you are caused to rouse a lot of effort. So it's a deliberate limitation that you, you take on. That you can choose to do, but it also shows you how the mind can take refuge in sleep. So, like just eating, uh, eating once a day, it shows you how the mind can take refuge in having a full stomach or, or having the, the things to eat that you like and whenever you like them. To uh, to recognize, well, no, you've made this resolution, just going to eat once a day. So, right now it's ten o'clock in the morning. Your stomach is growling. Okay, <laughs> that's a growling feeling. It's uncomfortable. But it's not damaging, and, you, and it is a cause for reflection. So I, I feel that these kind of things, are, uh, again, I leave it up to individuals. You make your own choices. But 
the Buddha set these in place as practices, the testing practices, to help us to know directly the habits of attachment to comfort, to food, to sleep, to personal space. And particularly in the lockdown, when you have to share your personal space with, with other people, you, you can't get away from others, uh, where you, you can't necessarily be, be comfortable, um, you don't get the things that, that you want. To see that the, the Buddha, uh, say, uh, advised these as practices deliberately as ways of helping to sharpen the wisdom faculty, that you're going directly to those instinctual havens, uh, those sort of places where we like to go, to food, sleep, comfort, <laughs> to just to, to feel good. And... Uh, uh, and what the, these kind of practices are doing is saying, yes, they make us feel comfortable or they are, they, they can provide a little bit of consolation. But, um, if that's your refuge, if your refuge is in food, in sleep, in personal space, having things the way you like, sooner or later that's going to be challenged and then you won't have a refuge. So what these practices are doing is they're helping us to develop a refuge of mindfulness and wisdom so that we, we find that we're not afraid of being hungry, we're not afraid of being close to others, we're not afraid of people being noisy, or uh, we're not afraid of physical illness, or we're not afraid of aging and dying, um, because we've, uh, say, turned, we've learned to turn towards us, to open the heart to that, and to say, change the view from a, a self-centered view to a view centered on, on Dhamma. And so these are challenging teachings. And if you, if you think, oh, Ajahn Amaro is telling us we shouldn't lie down to sleep, <laughs> we should uh, not, not have any breakfast or tea or supper. Uh, but I, again, I don't make people's decisions for them. I leave it entirely up to individuals to, to arrange your, your practice uh, as you like. But I feel it's good to understand the principle of the Dutanga and these, uh, particularly for the the, these testing times of the lockdown and the coronavirus is by, by consciously turning towards and saying, yes, uh, I'm ready to let go of this particular habit or this, this, uh, the, what I like to take refuge in. Uh, and, to, uh, I'm ready to put that aside for this period of time just to see if I can, uh, find that quality of peace and clarity, uh, spaciousness, even in the midst of limitation, like, um, like our friend in the in the the diving bell and the butterfly, he was able to find some peace and clarity even in his terrible locked down state. And uh, amazingly enough, he he passed away the day after the book was published. That uh, uh, they were able to show him a copy of the book, and then he died the next day. At least, maybe they tweaked that for the script of the movie. <laughs> but I think that's what actually happened. That uh, the 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 book got printed, and then phew, he uh, he passed on. So uh, again, I, uh, uh, people are you know, you're free to make your own choices, but I feel if we understand this principle, uh, this is actually a method uh, that the Buddha encouraged, a way of training the heart, these five subjects for frequent recollection, they're for the lay community as much as they are for the monastic community. They're a way of consciously turning towards the unlikable, the unlovable, and then witnessing the transformation, that sense of, oh, there's nothing to be afraid of. Oh, there was nothing that was owned anyway. How, how could anything be lost? Because nothing was really mine in the first place. Oh, what a relief. And that, oh, what a relief. That's the, the point of the, the whole thing. That's the, that's the purpose of it. 
again, to quote Lumpur Chao, one of uh, one of his very clear and incisive statements on this was, "If you put it all down, you'll see the truth. If you don't, you won't." <laughs> again, it's a bit blunt, uh, but uh, if there's things you want to hang on to, if you want to negotiate, fine. You know, people, we make we make our own choices. If you say, "Well, can I can I hang on to this?" I said, "Well, you can try." <laughs> If there's some particular precious thing you want to you want to try keeping okay it's up to you but uh the 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 place that that statement of lompo uh the, the the place that it comes from is that nothing can really be owned nothing can be kept you know, the things that we think of as being ours and have never really been ours so when he says if you put it all down you'll see the truth is is really saying if the the heart really awakens to to the reality of things then you realize that nothing could be owned in the first place so nothing can be lost if uh, if the if the nature of the mind the heart is dhamma in the first place what what can be lost what can intrude what what can cause imperfection what can really be a, a burden so what this is doing is helping the heart to awaken to its own nature as being dhamma itself every aspect of the body and the mind is an attribute of nature so that in this way we're learning to let go of the habitual refuges uh, of physical comfort physical health being able to follow our preferences and uh, and taking refuge instead in the reality of the way things are being dhamma to see that every aspect of this body and this mind has always only ever been aspects of nature and dhamma is nature so that uh, in this way we're helping the heart to awaken to the reality that's always been here that's always been the way that things are and so that that what's there to be afraid of so bodies get born bodies die that's uh, nothing has gone wrong nothing has been lost um, I can say that in a, in a bit of a glib way uh, and you say well it's not so easy Ajahn <laughs> But I feel it's also it's good to clarify those those principles. So, if uh, when a, a being is is born, is nature added to? When a being dies, is nature diminished? That uh, the natural order carries on in, in its own uh, extraordinary, magnificent, and multifaceted way, and it's because of our attachment to particular aspects, uh, particular parts of that natural order that we create stress and difficulty alienation confusion but when the there is a, an awakening to to nature when the, the heart uh, awakens to the reality of of things and its own qualities then the result of that is is freedom is is ease even in the face of illness and pain and, and difficulty there is there's no wrongness being uh, say imputed to the the present moment experience so I would say, uh, by by way of conclusion, that um, you know, the testing practices or testing dhamma is entirely appropriate for these testing times. To and that even though that's caught, uh, uh, asks us to do more work and it asks us to to turn to face the things that are uh, are bitter or difficult, the the result of that is very beautiful, as they say in the Chinese tradition, uh, bitter practice, sweet mind. That's uh, so in a way the uh, a summary of the the Dutanga approach that by turning towards uh, the, the 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 painful, the difficult, the unwanted, then the beautiful, uh, the wonderful is what is revealed. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this afternoon.
Blessed Son.